This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Scams have been around long before recorded history and have taken form in sometimes silly and sometimes diabolical ways. As long as there are easy targets out there, there's a scammer plotting to take advantage. We will probably never know if the first scam ever involved fire insurance for cave people. But what we do know is that the first scam to make it into the history books occurred in the year 300 BC. According to historians, a Greek ship owner agreed to take on a large cargo of freshly harvested corn. With weather conditions out at sea being as unpredictable as they are, the sea merchant wanted to cover his assets, so he purchased an insurance policy. The way it worked was pretty straightforward, as it basically operated much like a short-term loan. Prior to setting sail, the ship owner received money to cover the value of the boat, as well as the cargo it was carrying. Once the vessel and its cargo arrived safely at its destination, the loan was returned with interest. Should the money not have been repaid, the ship and its goods would have been seized. Confident knowing that his boat and cargo were fully insured, the Greek ship owner and his crew raised anchor and headed out to open water. It may have been fair weather on the horizon, but there was something dark brewing on board. Unaware that the cargo hold was actually empty, the crew were also most likely unaware that the ship owner was trying to kill them all. His plan was to sell the corn, which he had stolen and was being stored back on land, sink the ship along with the crew before it reached its destination, and keep the insurance money. As refreshingly original as his plan was at the time, the diabolical insurance scammer apparently did not account for one important variable. His crew, understandably, did not want to die. When they discovered the sea merchant trying to sabotage the ship and realized there was no cargo below, they started to clue in. Unable to convince the crew that it was all a misunderstanding, the Greek ship owner was chased overboard and eventually drowned. There are a lot of words in the English language for a scam. A racket, a grift, fraud, hustle, swindle, con, and let's not forget the classic, flimflam. However, a man in Boston, Massachusetts would give us the word that has become synonymous with money-making scams. His name was Charles Ponzi. And over the course of just a few months in 1920, he was able to steal millions of dollars from hardworking people. Strangely though, not a single person who excitedly gave him, in some cases, their entire life savings, knew exactly what they were buying. All they understood was that he had promised them a guaranteed return of 50% on their investment. Within a few months of first pitching his scheme, Ponzi was making nearly a million dollars a day. 
when journalists started to look into how it was possible to guarantee profits, let alone promising a 50% return, they realized that the investment product he was selling was nothing short of ridiculous. He was basically buying cheap stamps from overseas and selling them back to the US government at a higher price. After some simple number crunching, journalists calculated that it would take the equivalent of several cruise ships filled with stamps to yield the profits he needed to pay all of his investors. The scam was logistically impossible, and yet Charles Ponzi sold it like he was selling a bridge in Brooklyn. But even the fictional monorail scam from The Simpsons feels more believable than some of the schemes people have tried to pull off over the years. Remember the popular emu craze of 2012? Neither do I, but it happened. First of all, a quick refresher. The emu is the world's second largest bird next to its cousin, the ostrich. It stands over 5 feet tall, weighs in at over 150 pounds, it's native to Australia, and like the ostrich, it cannot fly. So, when the huge birds from down under started to arrive on a farm in India, it naturally drew some curious looks. The farm, with its out-of-place looking residents, started spreading the word that they were offering cash to people who would raise their emus. With an initial investment of around $3,000, investors could buy an emu chick and cover all costs until the bird had grown to a certain size. The emu farm would then buy the bird back, at a net profit, to the investor. It didn't take long before they had tens of thousands of investors, breeding almost 100,000 giant birds. Contract farming, as this process is called, is not uncommon. If someone has the land to do it, in many cases, it's a reliable source of income. Emus, however, are not the easiest animals to raise. Emus can live for 30 years, and they consume several pounds of food a day, making them relatively expensive to care for. But the rate of return the emu farm was offering was too good to pass up. In fact, it was too good to be true. The emu farm was using the money from new investors to pay back the original investors in a classic Ponzi scheme. Emu companies were popping up overnight, offering people unbelievable returns on their ever-increasing initial deposits. If an investor happened to live in an apartment with no space for breeding their own birds, no problem. For a lot more money, an investor could join at the VIP level, where the company would raise them for you at one of their facilities. What a deal. Despite repeated warnings from the government that this was clearly a scam, emu fever wasn't going anywhere. But when investors eventually stopped receiving monthly payouts, it became clear that the emu bubble had burst. As the perpetrators of this odd scam took off running, India was left with one of the largest emu populations outside of Australia. It's estimated that the total amount lost by investors exceeded $100 million. It's amazing to think that someone was so inventive that they used a bird to steal that much money from people, even if it is the world's second largest bird. What's even more crazy is how someone used the common pigeon to scam farmers in the US and Canada out of three times that amount. 
My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. If you don't follow obscure headlines, you may have missed the story about the not-so-famous, infamous crime boss known as the Pigeon King. He figured out a way to use pigeons to steal millions of dollars from unsuspecting investors. The crime was so absurd that it took authorities years to take it seriously, and even longer to do anything about it. Arlen Galbraith owned and operated what many would consider a fringe business, pigeon breeding. We're not talking about your everyday city pigeons, though. Galbraith was breeding racing pigeons, and while it may come as a surprise, competitive pigeon racing is really big business, in its really small world. Using the bird's mysterious homing instincts, races started with pigeons released hundreds of kilometers from home. Owners anxiously waiting for them to come back, or not. In 2013, it was reported that a businessman paid $400,000 for a champion pigeon. That particular bird was trained in Belgium and was named Bolt, after Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. But even at his fastest, the Olympic runner would be dusted by a racing pigeon who can reach speeds of 100 miles per hour. And in that sport, speed equals money. In 2015, the first place winner at an annual South African race flew away with $150,000 in prize money. Since then, things have skyrocketed. In 2019, a retired racing pigeon was purchased for an astonishing $1.4 million. Okay, Bitter in China just brought a prized pigeon at auction for nearly one and a half million dollars. The bird's name is Armando. 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 Armando's fast. Considered the best long-distance racing pigeon of all time. It's according to the website that organized the sale. The high price was a result of a bidding war that went on for several hours between two parties that wanted Armando and eventually made him the most expensive bird ever to be sold at auction. $1.4 million for a pigeon. Before this story, I would have believed you if you said the world record price for a pigeon was $6. Arlen Galbraith was no stranger to the world of pigeons. Before opening Pigeon King International in 2001, the 73-year-old had already spent over 50 years farming birds. As he began raising money for the new enterprise, Galbraith told potential investors that he had created a genetically superior racing bird and that he had already sold many of them to satisfied racers. He was known to boast about selling his birds to pigeon racing's most famous celebrity, heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson. For years, the professional fighter had been an outspoken advocate for the sport 
and started raising his own birds as a child. This is something I, I absolutely adore doing, of course. I'm a, I'm a pigeon man. Anybody that's familiar with having um, the pigeon bug knows this is going to be amazing to all the other pigeons. Yet, even though it was doubtful that Tyson had ever purchased Galbraith's pigeons, it didn't stop him from using the boxer's picture at those early sales presentations. He would talk about the popularity of the sport around the world and the lucrative prize money being paid. He provided little as far as details went, but was known to talk on and on about the industry and the opportunities within it. He had a no-pressure sales pitch that seemed to resonate with his target audience, typically small-town farmers looking for extra income. Galbraith would insist that interested investors do their research before giving up their hard-earned money. They were advised to go visit other farmers who had already started breeding the racing pigeons. Once they were satisfied it was a legitimate operation, then they were welcome to invest. In his sales pitch, Galbraith made it clear that his business was founded on trust and wanted to make sure that every investor believed fully in his vision. The no-pressure sales approach worked well, and it wasn't long before Pigeon King International moved from Arlen Galbraith's basement to a professional office building. Farmers were converting their old barns into breeding operations and buying up Galbraith's stock of young pigeons. At around $500 for a pair of birds, many farmers spent upwards of $100,000 setting up their operation. When the offspring were ready, they were purchased by Pigeon King International at a price of $50 each. In the first several years, the business was paying out an average of $10 million annually in returns. Some farmers claimed to be pulling in six figures from what started as a side business. By 2007, Galbraith had almost a thousand investors, breeding hundreds of thousands of pigeons in both the US and Canada. But what started seven years earlier as a business raising genetically superior racing birds suddenly shifted to the food industry. The pivot was in part due to the increasing skepticism about where the racing birds were going once they were raised and sold back to Pigeon King International. Some argued that the pigeon hobbyist market was not large enough to accommodate so many birds. They were not wrong. Galbraith informed investors that a factory in Northern Ontario was being built to process squab, the culinary term for pigeon meat. According to the Pigeon King, the global demand for squab was massive and had remained largely untapped. His plan was to make pigeon meat as popular around the world as chicken. Unfortunately for Galbraith, that plan was never realized. By the end of 2007, Pigeon King International's reputation as a legitimate business was being attacked. It started with a 73-year-old crime stopper named David Thornton. Considered a bit eccentric by those who knew him, Thornton had spent years exposing what he considered pyramid scams and Ponzi schemes. Once he decided Arlen Galbraith was running an illegal operation, he made it his mission to destroy it. The only problem was that, by all accounts, David Thornton came across as, well, insane. 
His campaign to end Pigeon King International started at a company open house for new investors. Standing on a log outside the event, he yelled at potential investors through a megaphone as they entered the building. He would telephone farmers late at night, trying to convince them that they were unwitting victims of a scam. But the warnings were often lost during the abrasive ramblings that left most farmers scared of the messenger rather than the message. According to those who spoke with him, his story of corruption was unhinged and erratic, and was often interrupted when he started uncontrollably crying. Not surprisingly, David Thornton's crusade to bring down the Pigeon King did not create much traction. But he was about to get some help. While David Thornton was screaming at investors through a megaphone, a small publication in Ontario was conducting an intense investigation of Pigeon King International. In 2007, the magazine Better Farming published a scathing 16-page article outlining why the pigeon breeding operation was nothing more than a money-making scam. The magazine had done their research, collating data from the agriculture industry, which included squab processing figures and numbers from the pigeon hobbyist community. According to the research, there was no market that could sustain the incredible number of birds Galbraith was buying and selling. The article proved what David Thornton had been trying unsuccessfully to tell people all along, that they were involved in a Ponzi scheme. While most Ponzi schemes are associated with the financial industry, the act of taking money from one investor to pay another is not relegated to just Wall Street. The fact that it was pigeons rather than cash may not make much sense, but then again, neither did Pigeon King International. Yet, by 2008, the little-known company held over $350 million in contracts with breeders across 20 states in the U.S., and half of the provinces in Canada. A forensic accountant would later report that if the operation had continued for another 10 years, the amount would have grown to over $3 billion. As the summer of 2008 rolled in, things were starting to crumble for Arlen Galbraith. The unrelenting bad press, complaints, and rumors had caught the attention of officials in several states where the Pigeon King did business. Washington, Maryland, and Iowa were the first to demand proof that the business was not an investment scam, or risk doing business there. Banks were starting to decline loan applications to breeders looking to invest in the company. The flow of money that, for years, had poured in was beginning to dry up. By July 2008, it was over. A letter that was sent to all investors a couple of weeks earlier explained in simple language that Pigeon King International was, quote, dead in the water. The letter went on to blame people like David Thornton for spreading fear and distrust within the farming community. Devastated investors were told that if they were going to blame anyone, they should, quote, blame the fearmongers. Called comfort for the thousands of breeders operating across the U.S. and Canada. The letter concluded by telling breeders that they could do whatever they wanted with the pigeons. With no market to sell them, and therefore no further reason to keep them, 
Agricultural agencies began to worry that there may be a real-life instance of Alfred Hitchcock's famous movie, The Birds. In the film, thousands of birds descend on an unsuspecting town, causing destruction and chaos. With an estimated half a million breeding pigeons in the province of Ontario alone, officials had good reason to be concerned. To avoid a pigeon infestation on a biblical scale, immediate and drastic steps were taken. As officials and farmers worked together in what would be the largest culling of pigeons in history, Arlen Galbraith was hiding in a basement. He was laying low on his ranch in northern Ontario, as angry investors searched everywhere for him. The man who once claimed to be spreading the pigeon religion was now scared for his safety. It remained like that until his arrest in December 2010. He was charged with fraud and numerous bankruptcy violations, and released on bail a short time later. But the Pigeon King's freedom didn't last long. After failing with spectacular ineptitude to represent himself during his trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to over seven years in prison. In 2015, Galbraith withdrew his appeal a small acknowledgement, perhaps, of his own guilt. He was released on parole in July 2016, under the condition that he avoids contact with victims of the pigeon scam, and that he does not start another business. So, the next time someone offers you a two-for-one return on a pigeon investment, or any other investment for that matter, you might want to perform some due diligence. A return that good is probably for the birds. Well, that, that's quite a coup, isn't it? <laughs> Any, anyone? Anyone? No? Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse for pigeons, it turns out that even the Chinese mafia uses them to make a few extra bucks. In August 2009, a person walking through a park in Belgium noticed a couple of men acting suspiciously. To the observer, it looked like they were dumping bags of garbage in the park. Upset with what they were witnessing, the passerby took several pictures of the men and contacted police. When authorities arrived at the scene, they expected to find litter, as the initial report had indicated. What they found, however, were the remains of 14 pigeons, each with one of their legs cut off. This was the exact number of racing pigeons reported stolen earlier that day from a breeding facility. Using the pictures provided by the witness, authorities located and arrested the two men a short time later. The Chinese nationals in custody told police that they were in the country doing business in the pigeon trade. When asked about the 14 pigeons they were dumping in the park, they insisted that everything was in order. When the men produced documents appearing to show proof of purchase, they were released. Investigators believe the men were part of an organized effort to steal racing pigeons and remove the valuable identification tag from their legs. 
The tags were then placed on common pigeons, which were sold as high-quality racing birds. Top breeders can receive over $600 a bird, making them lucrative targets in this obscure underground market. The pigeons discovered in the park were just 14 of a reported 64 racing birds stolen from top breeders in Belgium in just a 48-hour period. People from China, even they know they have good quality pigeons in China, but they will not quickly trust other Chinese. They prefer to come to Belgium and buy pigeons from Belgium. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.